Amen. Good morning, church. If you're not moved by that, I don't know. <laughs> We're so glad to have you here this morning. Those that are visiting, I just want to welcome you uh, to the Northwest Baptist Church and thank you for, for being here to worship with us. At this time, would you, would you pray with me? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, how great you are. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And Father, we just come into your presence now with, with worshipful hearts, so thrilled and thankful for what was accomplished for us in your son Jesus. Thank you so much for sending him to die for our sins. And so, Father, now would you be in this moment, God. Would your Holy Spirit dwell in this place, God. Would you move in this place, Father, as we open your word and preach from your word and hear from your word. May your word speak to us, God. Incline our hearts to you this morning, God. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 12 and just hold them there. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 3 through 11. But in speaking this morning, there are so many ways that we can define God. Scripture defines God in a lot of different ways. He is a consuming fire. He is the creator God. Indeed, he is the great I am. But there's another description, if you will, for God that gets overlooked and I think sometimes taken for granted. And that is that God is also described as our Father. Father. I mean, after all, we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, teaching his disciples how to pray, said, and when you pray, pray like this, our Father. He didn't say our Creator, which God certainly is. Or our consuming fire, which God certainly is. He said our Father. God is Father. But in saying that, I have to be careful because not everybody has the right to call God their Father. Only those who have received his Son, Jesus Christ. As John 1.12 tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right the right to become children of God. And so this morning, if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you belong to the family of God. You belong to the family of God if you have repented of sin and put faith in Christ. And so as such, God has a goal in mind for those that belong to his family. There is an objective in mind. He wants to conform those who are in his family to the image of Jesus, his son. He wants those in his family to look more like and become like his son, Jesus Christ. That is the objective. He wants them to be holy as he is holy. He wants them to dwell with him forever. He tells us that in Revelation 21.3. And this is the glorious hope 
that every believer has. And it should motivate how we live our lives on this earth, this glorious reality that is in store for us because of what Jesus Christ accomplished and what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing as we grow in him, in Christ. But on this earth, we still suffer. We still face trials and difficulties. And in light of these trials, it's, it's easy to sometimes forget that God is our Father and that he loves us. But the trials that we face are the very thing God uses to make us holy and righteous. The trials that we face are the very thing that God uses to make us holy and righteous. These trials and hardships are not the reality of God's hatred of us, but quite the opposite. They actually show that God is disciplining us because we are his and because he loves us. In other words, the sufferings we face are not a sign of divine displeasure, but of God's paternal affection. And even as I say that, it sounds counterintuitive. But as we unpack the scripture, hopefully that becomes more clear. When we are disciplined by God, there are three things that I want us to remember, that we must remember. I think three things that this text this morning, our text, is calling us to remember. Number one, we must remember the sufferings of Christ. Number two, we must remember the truthfulness of God's word. And number three, we must remember God's purpose in our discipline. The sacrifice, the sufferings of Christ, the truthfulness of God's word, and the purpose, God's purpose in discipline. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 12, pardon me, reading verses 3 through 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, and the word of God says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of God. And so in reading that text, it's important for me to point out what would have motivated the author of, or the writer of Hebrews to write that. Whenever we look at a text, we have to keep in mind what the author's intent was. What are the conditions surrounding this text? Why is the writer of Hebrews writing this at this time? It's because the church at that time, which was predominantly Hebrews, now there were Gentiles that came in as well, but this is a book to Jewish Christians, was facing overwhelming persecution. The grim reality of persecution was a deep concern for the, the writer of Hebrews. It was the, the, the setting in which the congregation would have heard this letter. They weren't sitting in comfort, but in persecution. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, but he says this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those uh, who treated, who were so treated. So he's, he's writing to people who have been afflicted, who are going through persecution. And what is his exhortation to them? What is he wanting to communicate to them? He wants to make sure that they don't become overwhelmed by the difficulties that they experience, but actually to see them as God, God's hand in disciplining them. And so when we look at our text, the very first thing that the writer of Hebrews calls his listeners and readers to do is two words. Verse 3, verse 2, consider him. We must look at Christ as our example when enduring hardship, which we certainly will endure. And the first thing we need to do is we must consider him. And that word consider is very important. It's actually a mathematical term that means to make a careful assessment, to form a just and accurate estimate, to think about actively with effort and precision. Donald Guthrie, the theologian, puts it this way. The readers are exhorted to weigh up carefully the endurance of Christ when contemplating their own hardships. He goes on, if the mathematical sense is still present, the idea must be of considering each aspect of the hostility which Christ had to endure against him until a complete picture is obtained. So it's this constant uh, assessment of uh, uh, looking at, observing, precisely thinking about how much Jesus endured on the cross. And then the, this term consider, it's a proportional term. To look at that proportionately and say, okay, this is how much Jesus suffered, and, and, and this is how much I'm currently suffering, and to weigh them, to carefully look at them, and continually do that until you get it burned in your mind how much Jesus had to suffer. And yet, the Bible says he endured. Consider him who endured. And you continually do that until you understand what Jesus went through. It's the same call in Chapter 12, verse 2, where the writer says, looking to Jesus undistractedly. It's that same idea. Both here, as Guthrie points out in verse 2, the readers are turned away from themselves to focus their gaze on Christ. 
That is the first thing we have to do. It's the thing that we need to continually do is to focus our gaze on Christ, to consider him. But it's so easy to consider our circumstances, to consider the difficulties, and to make an assessment of the difficulties and say, Jesus couldn't be for me. God, the Father, couldn't love me. Look at all that I'm going through. But then we hear in Romans where it says, he who did not spare his own son. Jesus endured. We have to consider him in our hardship. And I think this idea of hardship, when you, when you look at it from Western eyes, it, it, it takes a different uh, perspective than when you look at it in other places in the world. I think when we come to Christ, we expect that there is no difficulty. There is no hardship. There is no suffering. And yet, when you look at Christianity in other places other than here, these people understand what suffering is. They know they have a right expectation. They know what they signed up for. There, there's no confusion about that. When the Muslim leaves Islam to follow Christ, he understands what that means for him or what that could potentially mean for him. When those Christians worship in secrecy, reading scripture by candlelight, they know what that means for them. And so when we, in our context, think about persecution and hardship, it takes on a different perspective. But nonetheless, the call is still the same to those who are going through intense persecution and us. And that call is to consider him. To consider him. Why? Why do we need to consider him? The writer tells us. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners, sinners, such hostility against himself so that, there's the linking word, it's going to reveal something. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And weary here, it, it means to get tired, to become physically, mentally, or emotionally drained. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews was fearing would happen to his congregation. This was probably a local pastor. And he was fearing that because of this uh, intense opposition from sinners and this difficulty and persecution that they were going to walk away from, get tired of, and leave the faith. And time after time in Hebrews, you continually see that, those warning passages where some people think that you can lose your faith or fall away. No, it's a warning. God uses means, and that's one of them, to warn us. And here, the writer is saying, don't, don't, if, you, if you're not considering him, you're going to become tired, exhausted, emotionally drained, fatigued, discouraged. And how can you be effective if you are those things? How do you radiate Christ if you're that way? It's why we constantly have to consider him, how much he went through the immeasurable difference between his sufferings and what he endured at Calvary and what we endure on this earth. So the first reason is so that we won't get tired. The second reason is that we won't lose heart. He uses the word here, faint-hearted, and it just, that word means possesses life, the immaterial uh, part of a person. 
And so evidently, the writer knew that there was a tendency for his readers to, to lose heart, to get mentally exhausted. And this doesn't happen in a single moment, church. Over a period of time, with gradual slackening of your resolve, over a period of time as you experience the difficulties of life and they hit you wave after wave and, and, and you just fall further and further away and, and further, further back from Christ to where it's like, I just, I, you know what, being a Christian is tough. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Consider him. Consider him so that you won't give up, so that you won't become drained, so that you won't walk away. So a corrective for this tendency is an ever-deepening attention to the glorious object of the Christian faith. What is the glorious object of the Christian faith? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the glorious object of the Christian faith. It's him who we need to be looking at. It's him who we need to be considering always. The whole point to this passage is endurance. Pressing on, persevering, not giving up under persecution. And the only way we do that is by considering Christ. Consider what he suffered. So that's our first, first point. When faced with hardship, we must consider the sufferings of Christ and what he went through. But secondly, we must remember the truthfulness of God's word. And before I even move to that point, look at verse 4. Uh, in, in considering Christ. He says this, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he's saying, you didn't have to go through what Jesus went through. I mean, you had some things taken, some things confiscated, prison perhaps for your faith, but you haven't died yet. You haven't been martyred for your faith yet. But right on the heels of that, right, right, at, right after he says, uh, to the point of, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding your own blood. Look what he says in verse 5. And have you forgotten? And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? We must remember, point two, we must remember the truthfulness of God's word when we suffer. We must remember the truthfulness of God's word when we suffer. What is God word, God's word telling us? He says, this, this is an exhortation. And have you, in verse 5 of our text, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you forgotten that? The writer of Hebrews immediately appeals to Scripture to make his point about suffering. Immediately. And he asks if they had forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. It is so amazing how Scripture can be used to instruct but also encourage us during difficult times. That word exhortation means encouragement. Encouragement. Have you forgotten the encouragement that you are a son of God? Have you, have you forgotten that? The writer of Hebrews placed a very high value on the Old Testament writings of Scripture. And here he's quoting from Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. And right after quoting that, that text, he, he's going to explain it in verses 7 through 11. And, and let's look at it. Look, look what it says here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
What's also interesting, church, what's also interesting about this text that the writer of Hebrews quotes is that there are two responses that one can have to the discipline of God. Two responses. What are they? The text tells us. Number one, to be indifferent to it, to take it lightly. And number two, to be overwhelmed by it, to grow weary and have it almost, in, in a sense, crush you. These are two wrong responses. Raymond Brown, a theologian, he notes, some Christians may be well in danger of ignoring or dismissing the fact that God's sovereign hand is at work as much through life's adversities as in its joys and pleasures. God is at work in life, whether it's giving good or bad. God is still sovereign. He's still in control. He hasn't fallen asleep. Brown goes on to say, he may well be saying something extremely important to us through our troubles that we could not or would not easily receive if everything went well for us at all times. Think about that. There are certain things that God may be trying to tell you in your hardship and in your struggle that could not be communicated any other way. And, and so when you struggle, it is God saying something to you, to, to, to reveal something to you. Perhaps he may be calling us to renew our confidence in his, in his providential care, as Brown goes on. Or maybe to a fresh willingness to commit our entire life to him, whatever the outcome. Or our immediate difficulties. Maybe to a desire for God's will and not our own wishes. I mean, think about it. When have been some of the most powerful and sweetest times of prayer? When have those been? In difficulty, when a loved one is sick, when there's real issues in the family, and you, and you get down on your, on your knees and you cry out to God, and you depend on God because you understand he's all I have, and really he's all I need, but in that moment, it's, God, I, I need you right now. It's in, it's in the crucible. It's in those, it's in those times of hardship. Where we, where we praise God, where we, where we depend on God, where we lean on God, where we cry out to God. How rich is our prayer? And wouldn't it be interesting if that was the very point of the difficulty? To get you to lean on, depend on, and cry out to God? And that's not to say that God can't use good things in our life as well. But the context here is discipline. So we can be indifferent to it. Some people just, yeah, not a big deal. God wants to discipline me, don't care. People with real spiritual values of this kind, right, people who understand what God is trying to accomplish. Maybe God is trying to, to get us to, to be, have a readiness to go through any experience if it will make us more like Christ. Maybe that's why we go through hardship. And people who think like that, people who are, are understanding that this difficulty is helping me to, to, to lean on and depend on God, they won't treat the discipline of God lightly or flippantly when they understand what God is doing in this, as we'll get to in a moment. We need to be willing, and there's a real sense in which God is, is trying to communicate something about our lives that needs to be changed or amended. And he does this oftentimes through the difficulties that we experience. 
And so we need to be willing to hear God speak to us through his word and through our circumstances and be obedient to what God is revealing. What is God showing me in this circumstance? What am I seeing in God's word that I need to follow? What is it that needs to be altered or changed? Discipline, the word just means corrective. It's, it's, it's a corrective term. What is God trying to correct? Because you've got to remember the goal. God is trying to get you to look more like and be, and be conformed to his son, Jesus Christ. So what is it that he has to do there to do that? Oftentimes it's the things in our lives, the circumstances that we have that he'll send. And so uh, when we understand that as we pray and as we humble ourselves before God and we don't treat his discipline flippantly but are obedient to it, that we become more and more conformed to Christ. Because keep in mind, Jesus Christ was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. The second response to God's discipline is to become overwhelmed by it. Look at what the text says. Nor be weary when reproved by him. So when we, we go through difficulty, we find ourselves doubting whether God is, is with us or maybe questioning whether he really loves us. God, where are you? I don't see you. What's going on? We may even become despondent and discouraged by the hardships we face while on this earth, feeling like God has indeed forsaken us. But this is not the right response to God's discipline either. But again, as Raymond Brown points out, he says, the Christian who goes through severe trouble must remember, therefore, that the God who tests us is the Lord who helps us. He will certainly not test us beyond our strength. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that. And however serious our adversities, his grace will be sufficient. God's grace will be sufficient. God will not test you or give you more than you can bear. And if you're in a situation that feels that way, God's grace is going to be sufficient for you. And so what is the right response? What is the correct response to God's discipline when it happens? The right response is to remember what the Bible says about those whom God disciplines. And our text makes this very clear. The Lord disciplines the one who he can't stand. No, that's not what it says. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The true mark of God's love for us is his discipline of us. Let me say that again. The true mark of God's love for us is his discipline of us. And the true mark of our sonship is that God chastises us or, or punishes us as the word is. That's a true mark of sonship. And now remember, when I say punish, keep in mind, I'm not talking about eternal punishment. I'm not talking about God, uh, you know, the wrath of God being poured out here. This isn't vindictive. Remember, that already happened in Jesus. Jesus already bore the full punishment of God's wrath in his body. What does 1 Peter 2.24 say? For God himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you're healed. 
Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God. So this discipline that I'm talking to you about this morning isn't God's sort of capricious, willy-nilly, vindictive anger against you. It has a purpose. There's a purpose for it. And so the right response, this is, and if you think about this in our, in our society, this just doesn't seem to gel with how we think about what love is and how that's displayed, Right? It's so counterintuitive to our culture where the true mark of love is not discipline, but giving the child whatever they want. Whatever you want, here you go. That, that, that's, that, that's the true mark of love in our, in our culture. Instead of punishment or correction for the child, there is a doubling down of niceness. I'll just, I'll just be nicer. I'll just give him more things. I'll just give him what he wants. That will demonstrate my love. Let me, let, me, let me read a text to you. Proverbs Chapter 13, you know, you know the text well. Verse 24, the Bible says this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Do you see it again? This, this, this discipline is not about hatred. It actually is a... It, the absence of discipline is what hatred is. If I don't discipline, that's hatred. I mean, I, I don't have a responsibility when I'm in Publix and I see a kid that's just off the chain, you know, uh, going crazy in the aisle. I, I, might, I might say something, I don't know, but I certainly don't have the responsibility to discipline him. He, he's not mine. He's not my child. But if Caleb or Liam and... Mike, I don't know what he's going to do. Hopefully he's a, <laughs> if any, if, you know, they act up, I got to discipline them. I got to let them know. Why? That's my responsibility. And I'm not doing it, hopefully, I mean, most of the time, out of anger or, or this sort of, you know, vindictiveness, but it's to correct them for their benefit. It, it, it's a good thing, in other words. But this is the reality of it. There's this doubling down of niceness. But what this really shows is neglect and not love. And so because we belong to God, he will make sure that he brings about the desired result in us, which is holiness. That's the desired result. It is holiness. That's what God is accomplishing in his correction, in his discipline, in his chastisement. That is the mark of his love for us. He wants us to reflect and be like him. It's holiness. What was Paul's response? What was Paul's response when God said, my grace is sufficient? He had asked God to take this thing away from him. Jesus, take this away. And it's thorn in the flesh three times. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. What was his response? Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9b through 10. Our response to God's discipline is to boast in the all-sufficiency of Christ and to consider what he went through when faced with hardships in this world. And I'm not saying that it's, thank you, Lord, may I have another. We're not, we're not, you know, masochistic in this, but it's to understand that there's a purpose being accomplished in our suffering. 
there is a purpose that God is seeking to bring about. None of us have suffered as immeasurably as Jesus did. None of us have. Not to that extent. And all of us should remember that God is not punishing us as enemies. He is not punishing us or disciplining us as his adversaries, as his enemies. As I said, he's already done that in Christ. He's disciplining us as sons and daughters, which let's go, go back to our text. The writer of Hebrews has just explained Proverbs, and now he's going he's gonna to lay it out here. This is how important the word of God is. Remember, we have to remember the truthfulness of God's word. Now that he's read the text, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, in this ancient congregation, to these readers, to these hearers, he's now going to explicate what that means. And in verse 7, he says this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. The writer of Hebrews now turns to an explanation of the passage he just quoted from the Old Testament. He goes back to the word endure. There's that word again. You'll see that word a lot in the first 11 verses of chapter 12. Uh, we are to run the race set before us. How? With endurance. Why? Christ endured. He's our, our, our leader. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. So we endure looking at him. We have to consider him and how he endured. Consider him. So you're going to see that word a lot here in, in chapter 12. He goes back to the word endure. Look at what he says. It is for discipline that you have to endure, which means to just continue, have steadfastness, not give up. It's the same word used of Christ when faced with the hostility he suffered in the hands of sinful men. Again, Donald Guthrie points this out. He says, the same patient acceptance is expected of all the sons as is seen in the son par excellence. Such acceptance, he goes on, is possible only when and where an understanding of the motive behind the discipline is fully grasped. What is the motive behind God's discipline? Sonship. He is treating us as his children, sons and daughters of God. The same way Christ endured is the same way we, as sons, are called to endure. However, this endurance is only achievable when a proper understanding of the motive is involved, namely that God is treating you as sons. That's the proper understanding of discipline. God is treating us as sons. The writer goes on to note that th this ridiculous idea of a son who is not disciplined by his father. Look at what he says in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It, it's like, what? He's saying, how do you have a son whom the father does not discipline? He's basically saying, if, if, if you're not being disciplined, then you're not a son. Instead, you're illegitimate children. Illegitimate children. There's a word for that that I won't use, but if you look at old school Bibles uh, from the 1800s, they'll use the word, but illegitimate children. That means not recognized as lawful offspring. So if you're not being disciplined, you're not a son. You know, you look at the world and it looks like they're getting away with everything. Man, they can just have a great time and do all they want and nothing ever happens to them. Well, they can either receive the discipline of God as father 
where they can receive the punishment of God as judge. And that's the thing you don't want. You don't want, you, you want to take the, the discipline as familial and not eternal and legal, guilty. Jesus already paid that price. We, we don't want the discipline as a criminal, having not received the grace of Christ. We want the discipline from the Father because that's a mark of his love for us. The principle laid down here is that the relationship determines the purpose of discipline. A father who neglects to discipline a son is deficient in his capacity as a father. And a son who escapes all discipline is losing out on his sonship. Illegitimate children, those who are not disciplined by their father. And in verse 9, he makes this argument from the lesser to the greater. Look at what he says here. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. So he's setting the stage here for his argument. We've had earthly fathers. I know I certainly have had an earthly father who disciplined me. You know what that's all about. And he's making, he's making that point here. He's saying, listen, we've all had earthly fathers that discipline us. We know what that is. Look what he says. And we respected them. And now here's the, from the lesser to the greater. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live. He says if our earthly fathers disciplined us and, and we respected them for it, like we gave respect to our earthly fathers, hopefully, how much more should we respect and be subject to the discipline of our heavenly father? How much more? So all of this He's explaining from what he reveals in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. So we have to remember the truthfulness. What he's revealed in Proverbs 3 is truth because it is God's word. So if you're tracking with me so far, number one, we remember the sufferings of Christ. Consider him. Number two, we remember the truthfulness of God's word. But then thirdly, we have to remember God's purpose in discipline. Look at verses 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Share his holiness. Let me, let me start with verse 10. God's discipline of us is not like our earthly father's discipline. How so? The earthly father's discipline is temporary. It doesn't last forever. And, 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 and sometimes it's somewhat arbitrary. You know, go to your room and... Don't blink or whatever. You, you know, you say something like, I think that hopefully that works. Maybe it will. I'm doing the best I can. And you send them to their room only to find out that they like solitude. Oh, okay, well, um, you know, I found it, you know, the cell phone. That's where you really get them. You take that cell phone away. They go crazy. But it, 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 it's almost like uh, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm an, earth, you know, I'm an earthly dad. I hope I'm getting it right. In other words, the discipline of an earthly father, it only lasts for a short amount of time. And the discipline of an earthly father is done in a manner that seems best to that father. Some forms of discipline aren't good. You know, man, <laughs> it, it differs in culture. But in, in, in one particular culture, a friend was telling me that when he was disciplined, he used to have to kneel in uncooked rice grains. Kneel and, 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 and just be there. I'm like, wow, that, what manner of discipline is that, man? Like, I, I, I don't know. It differs. It varies. <laughs> you know? And, but, but God's discipline of us isn't like that. It's not arbitrary. It's not sort of 
you know, I'm, I'm figuring this out. Hopefully this works to get this guy to do what I want him to do or to look like me. I hope this works. No. God's discipline is not like that. Nobody knows us better than God. And he knows exactly how to discipline us in a way that will be effective. Not only that, but the text says that God disciplines us for our good. Remember what I said at the beginning. We're talking about our Father. God is our Father. He knows exactly what to do to get us to be shaped and conformed to his image, to the image of Christ in holiness. God is not an ogre. He's not a monster who violently seeks to harm us in his discipline. No, that's not the God we serve. It is for our good. More than that, it also brings about the desired result, which is sharing in his holiness. God's discipline of us is so that we will be like him. Again, Guthrie says it this way. He says, by contrast, God's knowledge of us is perfect. And he does what he does. And when he does it, it's for our good. For he understands what discipline is needed. God knows exactly what to do to get you conformed to how, what he's trying to accomplish in your life. He knows exactly who you are and what he needs to do. And he will never overdo it, nor will he neglect it. He wants to make us sons. He wants to make us his sons, and he wants to make us like himself. He has a specific aim that we may share, and it's in our text, share in his holiness. And while the earthly father's action is essentially short-term, doesn't last forever, the heavenly father is concerned with our eternal welfare, not just for the time being till you're 18 and then whatever. You know, No, this is our eternal welfare, sharing his holiness is the opposite of a short-term benefit. Sharing in God's holiness is an eternal benefit. The next result of God's discipline is that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Granted, this discipline that we're talking about, it's not always going to feel good. Anybody who's gone through discipline knows it's not pleasant. Even when your dad says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No, no, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts. But actually, as a, as a parent now, it's tough for me to spank my kids. I mean, I know I have to. I know I have to discipline them. But there's a certain aspect of it where it's like, if you would just listen. You would just listen. You could avoid all that. But I, I got I to do it to get him. I mean, if I don't do that, then I create a menace to society. He goes out there and he's often, you know, he's crazy. No, I got to discipline him to bring about righteousness. And it's not pleasant in the moment, but it has a yield that it brings. And this is the same imagery that Jesus had in mind in John 15 too, when he says every branch that does bear fruit, what does he do? He prunes it. That's not, that's not a comfortable term. That's a cutting term, right? He, he prunes it. Why? So that it may bear more fruit. You have more righteousness. This discipline, it, it, it's producing something. Finally, the takeaway is that we are trained, as it says in verse 11, to those who are trained by it. And the word trained is an athletic term, gymnazo. And you can imagine where we get our word, it's where we get our word gymnasium. 
and it means to be or become shaped or conditioned or disciplined by training. The child of God who undergoes the discipline of his heavenly father is shaped by it. And the outcome or result is holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Of righteousness. So what's the application quickly? Four things. We must consider, we must remember, we need to submit, we need to trust. We need to consider Christ when going through difficulties in this life and what he went through and how he overcame. We need to remember and trust the truthfulness of God's word and what it's revealed. We are sons, therefore we are loved. So when we get disciplined, don't see it as God's hatred or vindictiveness, but as a loving way to conform us to him in holiness. Thirdly, we need to submit to the discipline of God and not become indifferent, I don't care, whatever, or overwhelmed. God, it's too much. We have to, we have to trust him and, and submit to that discipline. But then finally, we need to trust in the glorious, the glorious reality of what results from God's discipline. Holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we can call you Father. We're so thankful for that because of what Jesus did. And when we put our faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus, we just thank you. Father, continue to shape us. Help us not to be indifferent or overwhelmed by your discipline because we know that you're doing it because you love us, God. And there's a goal in mind for it. I pray that each one here, maybe there's some who don't know you, God. They don't know you as Father. I pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of you, O oh God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, your, for its truthfulness. And most of all, we thank you for your blessed son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.